Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland uh, in partnership with WMPG in Portland, Maine. Today is the seventh show in our series on unpacking sovereignty. And we will be talking with professors uh, Harold Prince and Darren Ranko. Uh, professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and emeritus at Kansas State University. Uh, and uh, Professor Darren Ranko is a uh, member of the Penobscot Nation, an associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American programs at the University of Maine. So welcome, uh, Harold and Derek. So I want to start, uh, pick up from our last show on the, the sixth series where we talked about um, the Dean letter. I thought I should read a few excerpts from the Dean letter to Maine governor and council references failed assignment to buy the lower two townships from the Penobscot uh, especially since we'll be discussing this letter in today's show. I've determined the letter is in two parts. Part one being his reasons for failure in his mission. The second, his recommendations on strategy as to how to eliminate tribal sovereignty and make Indians main citizens. So I'll start reading. I, I've taken excerpts uh, here and there from his letter, very long letter. Uh, so I'll start with part one, uh, what, I, what I name is part one. In fulfillment of the duties assigned me by the appointment of the governor with advice of counsel for the purpose of negotiating with the Penobscot Indians for a release of their claim to the two townships of land situate at the mouth of the Mattawamkeag River under deed by virtue of the resolve of the legislature. In the month of August, I repaired to Old Town for the purpose of making the purchase of the Penobscot Indians. We held a conversation to meet me in three or four days at Mattawamkeag Point. The governor of the Indians did not fulfill his promise. I returned and found him still at Old Town. The priest had returned the evening before me. I called on the priest and held a long conversation with him in relation to the Indians. I stated to him the general object of my visit. He observed he thought the Indians would not be disposed to sell, assigning as a reason the advice of Bishop Fenwick. The priest informed me that the Indian mode of transacting was in the assembly of the whole tribe and by mutual agreement and would not act until a tribe generally assembled. I caused the governor and captains to be called in and stated to them, that the time was not far distant when the white people would destroy all the game and they would be left destitute. I told them the state wished to have the Mattawamkeag Township settled and would purchase of them the soil or take the right to sell them for their benefit and would be responsible to them for annual profits. During my intercourse with them, many were obviously anxious to sell and expressed a strong desire to be treated as white men are. 
and to have their shares of land set off them in severalty. They had all agreed to sell and wished me to say what the state would give them for the two townships and then said they would name a price. I named $10,000 and requested their answer. They stated to me that they would sell the Eastern Township for $2 per acre or both for $1 and a half per acre. The offer amount in the gross uh, to upwards of $48,000 for the Eastern one and for the whole to $69,120. Not being able to procure any alteration of terms, I was obliged to say to them that the state could not purchase and thus the object of my agency has not been attained. And uh, so I want a question to, to Harold about your, your thoughts on that, on the Dean letter. How important was that and high points of that letter? The important thing is of that letter is that it was actually written in 1830, in the summer of 1830, but it refers to negotiations that had been going on uh, the previous year in 1829. And the reason why um, those dates are important, that's exactly when the Cherokee nation uh, is subject to enormous pressure uh, that led to the passing of the Indian Removal Act of 1830, the exact same year that Dean writes that letter to the state government as a report of his negotiations to um, have forced the Penobscot nation to uh, sell the two lower townships, which are the two townships uh, that are uh, where now is um, Matawemkak, the town of Matawemkak, and where the Indian head village used to be, uh, one of the three head villages, the other two being at the Indian Island and Pasadumkeg, um, and then uh, the township on the other side. There were four townships that had been secured uh, or remained in Penobscot hands uh, after the uh, 1818 treaty uh, with Massachusetts, uh, which was followed up by the 1820 treaty with the state of Maine, they retained um, uh, ownership of uh, four townships above the 10 townships that had been sold uh, in 1818. And those were in addition to the nine townships that had been sold in 1896, 1796. So these last, last four townships were extremely important to the Penobscot um, but the lower two of those four, um, in particular the eastern one, which was at Madawemkag, that was of crucial importance to the state of Maine because of the military road that had been constructed from Milford uh, through what is now uh, Lincoln up to Madawemkag and then all the way to Holton. And a stagecoach uh, route had just been opened in 1829 along that military road to what was going to be an essential um, defensive frontier uh, from the state of Maine, um, defending itself against uh, British claims to northeastern Maine, which was a disputed territory until 1842, when it was settled uh, uh, by the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. And so that letter by uh, Dean is in essence a report to the state government where it puts enormous pressure on the Penobscot nation to sell the lower two townships, the most important of which was the eastern one at Madawemkag, because that's where the road went through and where a bridge was constructed and where there was a tavern. But it also happened to be at the site of an Indian village, a Penobscot Indian village, where the head chief, um, uh, John Adian, was living. 
the governor, uh, the governor of the Penobscot Nation. And so when Dean uh, comes up with an offer for a price, he offered a price that was unacceptable to, to the Penobscot. The Penobscot, if they were going to sell, they at least wanted to have a, a value for their land. If they couldn't hold on to it, then at least they wanted to get fair value. And they put a price on it much higher than what Dean was offering. Dean was offering, in essence, uh, 22 cents an acre uh, that was much lower than what the Penobscot later uh, said to him in response that they might be willing to uh, pass up with that land uh, for $2 an acre, which is about almost um, uh, 10 times more than the state was, or actually Dean was willing to offer. Uh, so what then happens is um, in that pressure for them to sell, uh, the question is whether they were actually willing to sell. And the possibility is that the reason why they might have been willing to sell was that just uh, that same year in 1829, when these negotiations are going on, uh, vigilante violence was perpetrated against John Adian, who was burned out of his uh, homestead there on Matawamkak Point, uh, not far from the bridge. Uh, his eel weir was destroyed, his barn was destroyed, and his family felt so afraid for their lives that he and his family then moved to one of the islands upriver, not far from uh, where now is um, Lincoln. Um, uh, and so here there was a realization that uh, they might physically not be able to uh, hold on and defend their land if vigilantes would be go unpunished in terms of their uh, terrorizing of the people who were living dispersed and made easy vulnerable uh, targets for uh, white vigilantes who might be paid off by a sawmill operator or by a timber merchant or by somebody or even a squatter. So the sum total is that that 1830 letter by John Dean is not just about the purchase uh, by the state of Maine of the townships, but you have to see it into the larger context, A, of the disputed territory that we've talked about before with the military road right going through uh, that township uh, that remains as an Indian township. And the second one is the national policies in terms of uh, Jackson, uh, the former General Jackson, who uh, was just elected as president and who came, of course, from the South and basically making the argument that the Northern, uh, the senators from um, uh, New England, in essence, were hypocrites because they were wa wa waving the finger at the Southern states for the way they wanted to subject the Cherokee Nation, for example, under state government, in this case of Georgia uh, and a little bit of Alabama. And they themselves were not beholden to the same argument, which was basically as um, uh, stipulated by the Non-Intercourse Act of 1790, that uh, it was the prerogative of the federal government to make the treaties, not the state government. And so here is first Massachusetts in uh, 1796 um, after the 1790 uh, Non-Intercourse Act. And then again in 1818 uh, in violation of the Non-Intercourse Act, uh, which was a, an assertion of federal authority over state authority to make treaties. Um, and here's the state of Maine in essence guilty of that violation in, um, in 1820 when it in essence takes over responsibility for Massachusetts and then tries to do it again in 1830, which is the reason why ultimately when the tribe loses 
those four townships, there are no treaties. These are purchases. These are never phrased in terms of treaties because they knew darn well by that time that this was a dispute with uh, the Southern states uh, in terms of an assertion of sovereignty by the states, Georgia in this case, uh, over the Cherokee Nation. And that of course leads then to the uh, Indian Removal Act of 1830 that forced uh, into exile the Cherokee who did not, um, could not live under the um, yoke of, um, of a, a, a government, state government in Georgia and the land grabs that were going on there. So Darren, did you get a chance to look at that letter and have any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, and I had seen uh, some of these letters before, and there, um, there, there are a few. They're all on <clears throat> digitalmain.com. Uh, so, if folks are interested in looking them up, the the dean letters. The um, I want to read just a section. I I don't have a whole lot to add because I think. Um, Harold added, you know, gave the, the appropriate context. There's this local and more national context that's driving sort of, I think what the state believes is with the, <laughs> looking at the national context, like a kind of, you know, enhancing their, uh, what they would consider their superior position. I think that's, I think that's accurate. Um, and you see this kind of the more bold uh, statements by Dean and others in these letters in terms of their authority related to the, to the tribes uh, here, the Penobscot tribe. Um, one thing in, on an earlier letter from one of the 20, 1829 letters is, I just wanna read a part of it because it, it shows you the real disconnect. It's sort of like why, you know, and, and Dean says this all the time that, you know, the, well, the smart Indians wanna um, sell because they want the cash or whatever, like in talking about sort of, strife and he's trying to kind of play out these like internal politics to his advantage um but i i think he's you know purposely missing the mark here um so in one of the earlier letters uh he talks about um you know they keep talking about these hunting grounds is what he keeps saying and um but there will be a time and this is what this is what i think is so crazy and so cuts to the quick of like the mindset, you know, of someone like Dean, um, in trying to convince the 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 Penobscots that the that there's a time coming when the game will be destroyed, and I suggest that if you were to have houses and barns and cattle and sheep, that when the game should all be destroyed, you would live as comfortably as white people, and that the interests which might be derived from the sales might well be applied to aid you in the purchase of these houses cattle, sheep, and everything. So you see this, you know, much like with the Cherokee, this notion that, you know, <laughs> the interest of the state is not just the land. Of course, it's the land. <laughs> but in terms of your benefit as Indians, like, you know, abandon your traditional hunting grounds, don't live as you've always lived, um, and become like us. And that sort of, you know, hollow, which I consider a very hollow promise, um, a, part of a, a part of a double step here. Um, you see that very emergent in because these letters are written kind of to the Penobscots and to the governor and council. So you have this sort of, you know, he's making this case. And I think that's just, it's to me, it's very instructive, sort of adding to what Harold already mentioned in, in some of this uh, piece. Yeah, he, and you're, and you're right. He, the letter is more, it, it's more than about, uh, the purchase of those lands because he had talks about his conversation with the priest 
and how uh, the, how the priest feels that the uh, the tribes are sovereign brings that up, and uh, Dean says, "No, no, I, I, they're not sovereign. Uh, they're wards. You know, we've been taking care of them since they signed the treaty." So, so my question is, as soon as that ink dried on the treaty, or even before, they 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 stopped recognizing uh, tribal sovereignty. That they're very second. Did they plan on? In, in your opinion, Harold, do you think that they signed that treaty uh, with the intent of just not recognizing sovereignty ever again? Just that. Yeah, uh, uh, number one, and that's uh, again, the Cherokee uh, is a uh, wonderful example because here you get it um, teasing out of what sovereignty means, which is the whole theme of your uh, series that you're exploring uh, in these conversations with us um about unwrapping sovereignty right that's the whole thing and so with the uh cherokee it's formulated in a supreme court case um that the formulation of a domestic dependent nation is um proposed and that already is is coming at at uh, in the whole debates prior to that ruling that same concept namely that the Penobsc the uh, the cherokee are subject to the authority of the federal government the question is in essence whether they are also under the sovereignty of the state government and so the difference between the Cherokee and the Penobscot is that the assertion is being made that the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy are under the sovereignty of the state as opposed to directly under the sovereignty of the federal government and the whole point about the non-intercourse act of 1790 has been after the United States got its own constitution that that prerogative namely the right to make treaties was reserved only to the sovereign, which is not the state, but in this case, the US Congress, right? The same thing that US Congress has the right to make war, to declare war. There's not anybody else, a state can't declare war. So the same thing with um, the, the, the relationship with native peoples who have their own tribal lands and their own traditions of sovereignty is that states inherently don't have the right to make treaties with um, American Indian nations within the boundaries claimed by the United States. And that's, uh, that's the, key, uh, the key thing. So here, what we basically see are the roots in the Dean letter of what has been haunting the Penobscot nation and the Passamaquoddy uh, in the, as a result of the um, main Indian land claims case that was settled out of court in 1980, where this whole language about municipalities comes in. So the reason why we are now driving in on the Dean Barber exchange, right? The, uh, the Jesuit uh, Virgil Barber, as opposed to John Dean, the lawyer acting as an agent for the state is exactly the same story as we now see with the governor, Janet Mills, exactly the same story. It's just a little different dressed. And instead of a male white male governor, we have a female white governor, but the mindset, namely that the state of Maine has some sort of sovereign rights over in its own uh, peoples in general, but not making an exception for the indigenous populations, which are the tribes, which are who have a unique relationship in contradistinction to any other minority in the United States. That's why it's always a false proposition to equate the struggle of African Americans in the um, against slavery. Uh, with those of American Indians, because there's no one will ever argue that um, Africans 
African Americans or any other Hispanics, for example, would have had sovereign rights to begin with. And that distinguishes um, the whole um, body of Indian rights and Indian rights law from all the other civil rights laws that may also be in existence. And so it's a really an important uh, document um, with respect to um, uh, Virgil Barber, the Jesuit, uh, who had converted from ep Episcopalianism, but was highly educated himself. He was a good party for John Dean, who is really afraid of him because he knows that, um, that Virgil Barber, as a Jesuit, who later becomes a professor at Georgetown University, that he is minimally his equal in terms of knowing white dominant societies, legal uh, arguments and philosophies. He, he knows that game, which is very hard. We all know we are wrestling today with all these issues. They are, they are not self-evident. And Virgil Barber is basically following the rule of Bishop Fenwick, who had just become the Bishop um, of the diocese in Portland. And he had met with the Pesamukwadi in, in, in 1827. And he basically says, um, Bishop Fenwick, when he makes his tour, he basically says to the Pesamukwadi uh, chiefs that they have a sovereign right and they have no, uh, they should not be under the pressure of the state government to sell those lands or to do anything that uh, that state of Maine wants. And so he's basically underscoring but Bishop Fenwick does, also Jesuit, by the way, um, and you a little bit see a, a, an adumbration a foreshadowing of uh, liberation theology um, in South America, where many of these Jesuits have been remarkably brave and often paid with their lives um, in terms of defending indigenous peoples that they work with against the dominance of repressive regimes. And Bishop Fenwick deserves credit not well recognized as such, uh, but as really giving a boost to the uh, to the tribal governors, the tribal chiefs, that they do not uh, have to follow the orders of the Indian agents who are really agents for the state, not for the nat native peoples that they are supposed to serve. So then um, when Virgil Barber is appointed as missionary among the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy, he basically follows the precept set by Bishop Fenwick um, that in essence, the argument that the Penobscot nor the Passamaquoddy have surrendered their inherent sovereignty. That's a very important piece that comes through in the response by, um, by the tribe uh, with the help of Virgil Barber in the response to John Dean's letter. Yeah, Donna, just, just, uh, just to tie it back to previous discussions, and I think yeah, just to drive home, I, I won't spend much time, but what Carol is saying in terms of you know, the, the doctrine of Christian discovery and domination, you know, sets off, you know, a, a first a religious that becomes racialized supremacy uh, of, of whites over Indians, but then also, um, you know, and that gets settled through the Cherokee cases, as, as Harold mentions, um, but in the Cherokee cases, unlike in Maine, and, and this comes back to bite, you know, both the federal government, I guess primarily the federal government, um, through the Settlement Act um, and, and other entities is that those cases put the domestic dependent status as somewhat under federal control, but not under state control. Um, it, it is a little bit of an open question for some time, but, um, you know, by the Cherokee cases, especially um, 
Worcester v. Georgia, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, it is clear that the state of the state does not have this kind of um, sovereign control. And Maine pushing to go this other way puts them in direct violation with Supreme Court and other kinds of federal law. And I think that's why, you know, we still have this issue trying to equalize or recognize or fix the fact that it, and it's partly because the state of Maine's position is, is incoherent, you know, in terms of um, this notion of federal Indian law. And they, they grapple onto the municipality language, of course, in the Settlement Act. But I mean, you know, that all of that is in direct violation of the broader dictates of federal Indian law. And, and you know, in terms of where it came down. I mean, I would prefer to think that, you know, many of us are saying even Cherokee Nation and, and Worcester v. Georgia are, you know, forms of racism by saying basically because whites are around you, Europeans and European Americans show up, you, you somehow don't have the full sovereign control over either your land or over the polity, you, you know, your political and, and, and legal notions. That is driven through still in federal law. Like the mere presence of a quote unquote superior, meaning a white Euro-American nation, means that you are diminished somewhat as a domestic dependent. And that ideology is so firm in the Cherokee cases. And the state of Maine is just, is fairly distinct in arguing, well, it's actually even worse, right? It's like you are beholden not only to a federal authority and superior, but also a state authority and superior. And that's their position. It's just in, it just happens to be in violation of all the other federal cases and laws going on, even in the 1830s. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that uh, Maine had a habit has a habit of uh, ignoring uh, federal law when it comes to the tribes. You oh, know, yeah. Jackson, they, they follow Jackson's uh, example where uh, Jackson refused to implement the court decision, you know, and, and you know, he says, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's going to happen anyway, no matter what, no matter what you rule. Well, um, well the, the perverse argument, because there's a perversity, actually, and I don't use that term lightly, but it's perverse in the sense that uh, in the case of the Cherokee, uh, when they are in essence, the people from Maine, the senator from Maine, Peleg, is um, basically arguing, um, without mentioning the case of the Penobscot at all, is simply anti-Jacksonian. Um, the argument is in essence, why be so cruel to the Cherokee? Because they're going to be extinct anyway. Just be, be patient. So the, it's not a real defense of Cherokee rights. It's simply the vanishing Indian story uh, that comes into play and that becomes very convenient. So why massacre them or drive them out if all the uh, evidence is they're going to become extinct? So just wait a little bit. And so the false philanthropy, that was the term used at the time, a term which I think find rather apt, uh, but the false philanthropy is basically premised on the idea of extinction of indigenous peoples and that will be the final solution. I know that term is uh, loaded, right? The final solution was used with respect yeah. to the Nazis exterminating Jews, uh, but the Holocaust that was perpetrated on American Indians in New England, we all know about it in the 1600s and 1700s and the Penobscot nation, as you know well, uh, well both you, as members of your, of your own nations, that it had been reduced to about 350 people at the time of these letters. And so they had good reason to think that from a military point of view, uh, the Penobscots had already been uh, eliminated. And from a humanitarian point of view, it would be easy 
to be um, generous toward them to a degree if you expect to will be out of the picture anyway. Right. So, I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting tidbits in this letter that we're talking about. Uh, and, and one that it's almost like, like Dean sort of laid the, the, the groundwork for how the state was going to treat the tribes in the future, where he, he makes these recommendations about, you know, uh, I think they should be uh, have separate land and, and, and farm. And, uh, you know, he, he sets the stage for what's going to happen uh, in the future. And I think it was because he was, he was uh, upset because he didn't make that sale. Yeah, it's actually, right? that's true. What's also true is an ideology, right? The key thing is uh, we sometimes forget the, uh, the, the meaning of the concept of hegemony, hegemony in the sense that um, it works by um, creating a worldview that becomes so self-evident that you don't realize anymore that it's actually man-made, in this case, not by humans in general, but by the ruling elites. And so the dominant... Uh, white male supremacy creates a worldview that makes the world seem self-evident to themselves. It's only later or when you're coming from the outside and you don't subscribe to the same worldview that you're saying, what the hell are you talking about, right? Which is what you're doing, right? We're engaging with John Dean. John Dean has been dead for a long time, but we recognize in his writings, just as we do in the writings of William Williamson, the historian of Maine, um, in the 1830s, and before him, James Sullivan, who wrote the first history of the District of, of Maine in 1795. Well, James Sullivan in particular, that just drips of the racism. That's unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't, uh, if you read that text, uh, it is really um, amazing that that was actually accepted by one of the founders of the Massachusetts Historical Society. So here you see this kind of wrapping of history uh, legislation uh, and, and political repression and ec economic exploitation, it all is wrapped into one big ball called culture, right? And so when we talk about the past is a different country, um, it, it really is because it's almost a, a hard to believe sometimes that elements um, then people would say as self-evident, not to be contested. And yet, as we do in your show, uh, Donna, we are basically in dialogue long time later, because we realize that that mindset is still to a degree alive and well. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, why do the damn show, right? Yeah, right. Um, I think there's a, there's a pattern for Maine and it may have, and it may just be with uh, not just Maine, but, but colonial, uh, I don't know, people, the, the colonial system how it works and I kind of I kind of have an acronym for that and I call it ICE isolate control and eliminate and I think that's what Maine's been doing and it's what it is doing now and I think Dean's letter you know just I think they had always done it since 1820 but I think they continue to do it right up through to present and the fact that you know the the tribes are isolated from the rest of Indian country uh, through Maine's refusal 
to recognize the sovereignty of the tribes and, and continuous wanting to control them. And, and they, you know, and, and they've also done legislation that would actually eliminate the tribes and cut down on, uh, on tribal members, the census, and then putting this, laying this quarter blood stuff on, on the tribes. Uh, you know, uh, I'm just not, go ahead. <laughs> you got something to say, I'm, I might. But yeah, Donna, I just uh, think, you know, uh, it, again, the driving it home, it, it, it's in, in the Dean, the, the 1830 Dean letter, the one that sort of, you know, I, I actually think he comes across as kind of petty and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and odd in it because he's like talking about how, basically how he's failed in his negotiations. But, um, you know, this, he, he talks about the condition of the Indians is daily becoming worse. Their means of subsistence are diminishing. Beggary and misery is increasing. Like he's using, the the previous 10 years of basically trying to control and cut off indians from the state of maine right from the beginning and he's looking at things hey things have gotten worse of course that is totally the design they are trying to cut off us from our resources from all the different decisions that get made and it's um now it's like now we're ready to put in basically the final blow the final dagger like just try to use the misery and their ill treatment of us as the mechanism to basically erase us entirely. And you see that that's very consistent, of course. Yeah, well, may, uh, yeah. if it, if it may, uh, building on uh, Donna's earlier comment about uh, the, um, the um, elements that persist, right? Uh, that you see in the Dean letter uh, of 1830, there are elements that persist to uh, this day, uh, nine, what is it, uh, what are we there, 18, uh, 190 years later, right? It's kind of amazing, uh, 190 years later, that we're still discussing these issues as not being dead. There's a certain element uh, of a mindset that comes through that, as we just said, um, we're also governing um, the 18, uh, sorry, the 1980 Land Claim Settlement Act, and it has actually become worse to a degree now than it was in 1980, which is hard to believe if we look at the way the Janet Mills first as the attorney general and now as the governor uh, with respect to um, the uh, sovereign rights over the Penobscot River, uh, which is uh, in the Court of Appeals. Um, I can't say much more about it uh, for obvious reasons. I've mentioned that before, but it's important. So now we go to the second part of his letter, which uh, consists of a recommendation on changing the state policy. In my second interview with the priest, much conversation passed between us. The relative situation and rights of the Indians and the state. He supposed they were independent, possessing both the rights of property and sovereignty and could not be, become free men, which gave me occasion to go into their history as connected with the settlement of the country the province of Massachusetts Bay, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the state of Maine, and the decisions of their judicial tribunals. The government of Great Britain in accordance with principles adopted by civilized nations was considered themselves from the discovery and settlement of the country as the sovereigns of it. Hence, in all their charters, they conveyed a qualified sovereignty and the right of soil subject only 
to the Indian right to the fee. They have always been under the peculiar care, and it may even be said, the guardianship of the state. They are citizens of the state and might at any time, by the extension of the law of taxation over them, be enabled to exercise the right of suffrage in common with other citizens. And were they to become permanent residents and the subject of taxation within any of our municipal corporations, they would then be lawfully allowed to the right of free men. The situation of the Indians is peculiar, not merely as it relates, relates to the mode in which they have been treated by the government since settlement of New England, but as it relates to themselves. There are but two courses which have been untried with them. One is coercion and the other is the operate upon their pride by elevating them. If the government were to adopt a system for their government, which should compel them to remain stationary and labor for their subsistence, they would be relieved from many of the wants and miseries which they now endure. I am not aware that such a system would be found upon any other principle than our present laws in relation to them. Our present laws are based upon the idea that they are incapable of managing their own affairs and are intended to promote their interests and happiness. If the state were to adopt a coercive system, sell a part of the land to defray the expense of the necessary establishments and compel them to labor and cultivate the soil, there can be little doubt but that they would raise an abundance of the necessaries of life for their own subsistence and the next generation would form habits, the reverse of the present. I am aware that many may object to it, although it involves no new principle, but only extends the old one in the management of the Indians in their affairs. They wish to change the present tendency in common and to hold their shares in severalty. They wish to be able in all respects to manage their estates as the white people do. Why should not the state change their course when it has been tested by many years of experience and been found not to answer any useful purpose when the Indians have been found continually to sink and dwindle under it, when it promises finally to complete a most abject state of pauperism and misery to them and will finally make them mere nuisances to the state. It cannot but be supposed that the state will see them uh, perish in want. It will then follow as an inevitable result if the present system is continued, they must eventually be supported at the public expense. In a change of system then, there is no risk, but there is an encouraging prospect of gain. I have the honor to be very respectfully your humble and obedient servant, John G. Dean, Portland, 20th, 20th July, 1830. Uh, but let's go back to, uh, uh, where I mentioned about isolation and, and Harold, if I remember, you mentioned something about uh, the the state governors interfering with like the Wabanaki Confederacy. Yeah, I would like to, uh, that's true. Um, can I say a little bit about uh, the, uh, the response by the Penobscot? I have the letter in front of me and it's a short letter and I'd like to read it for the, your audience. Sure. Because the response is a real 
um, the rebuttal, but there's a rebuttal in writing that I have here. Uh, do I have your permission, uh, Donna? Yes. Uh, so the Dean letter is very, very long, as you know. Uh, the, the response is shorter. Let's see. That was written uh, four days after Dean leaves, after his first encounter. So there's a letter uh, by, the, by the governor and the tribal council, but most likely um, penned, actually written by uh, Barber in, in, uh, in communication with um, uh, the uh, tribal governor and tribal council. And um, that has to do with the land, right? Yeah, it's a, um, yeah, it has to do with the land. And um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, why don't you proceed? I'll quickly look with it. Why don't you ask Darren a quick uh, question maybe, and then I will um, find it and read it to you. Okay, Darren, <laughs> you're up. Um, well, I'll, I'll hold on to, I mean, I, I think, um, and I don't know how much further, I mean, we've talked before actually, right, this, this, um, this land transaction that gets approved, you know, very much against the will of the Penobscot people and for the townships. And, um, you know, this is, this is a pretty, you know, novel and amazing kind of, you know, violation again of, of, of federal law. What I think is interesting, and this, this comes up uh, also again in uh, the Merch v. Tomer case from 1842, and you see the cementing, which, which I just think is so crazy, the cementing of the superiority that it's basically like, yeah, we can take their land because they're Indians, you know, without due process. And we'll call it a treaty. We'll call it whatever we want. We'll call it, you know, it's for their interest because we're, you know, we're, we're helping them by taking their land because now they'll become like us. You know, that, that logic drives so much of it. Um, so the, the wardship condition of us as Indians is, is perfectly good for them to take our land. Um, however, you know, in the Merch case, which is a lot of people make a big deal out of because it's, it's where the, you know, the, uh, the court refers to us as imbeciles and all that. Um, but in fact, despite us being wards uh, and, and not really having total control over our land and resources as wards or the state just gets to decide to do it for us. Um, at the heart of the merch case is, is that it's a contract case. And it's, you know, we're not to, you know, the, the ruling in that case is in fact that the, the, the tribal citizen, uh, Toma, actually can and uh, is allowed to and is allowed to be held responsible for a contract that they sign. So I, I don't believe at the time that other wards like children or other wards of the state of Maine would actually be allowed to sign and be held responsible for contracts. But some, some, somehow when it's in the interest of the state, we're not so much wards, right? We can sign a contract. Um, so they get the, you know, this is just like, they get to have it both ways, right? So if we were wards, they would actually have to take care of us and protect us. They don't really want to do that. We're just wards for when they want our land. Unless they want us to sign a treaty, then we're sovereign. Yeah, then we're sovereign and then we can sign a treaty and a contract, even though we're complete wards, right? It's just like, they're not letting children do that at the time in the 19th century, right? So there's clearly we're not wards. They're just using that as a way to take our land. Right, Harold? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, quick comment, and then I will go to the letter. Uh, what's interesting about the Dean letter also, uh, there's many things interesting about that letter, and my, you might actually want to have it as a required reading, uh, Darren, in your, cla in your uh, classes, because there's so much to be said uh, in uh, about that letter and its response. That's a great exercise for people to kind of feel, ponder what is going on here, right, and how early. Yeah. But the other thing is interesting about the Dean letter too is that he, in essence, um, uh, proclaims that rather than having the annuities the uh, that are uh, agreed by treaty of um, uh, 1820 in kind, right? So he basically says you get uh, X amount of barrels of um, of uh, corn, get X amount of uh, flour, uh, 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 pork, uh, molasses, right? It's all stipulated uh, by treaty. And it basically the argument is um, that the, um, the Penobscots basically say, why don't you give that us in uh, in cash, right? But they, they don't, don't do that. They basically say, we are willing to sell you land, um, but that land, that sale, that money will be managed by us and we will invest it for you and you will get interest. So what you see here is an interesting example of a capitalist uh, penetration into the remaining tribal reservation lands, whereby the state of Maine not allows Penobscots who are selling their own land, if they are uh, would be agreeing to the sale, that they can actually manage their own investment. But in this case, it's the state of Maine that basically like the fox in the hen house, that is first ripping them off for a much cheaper price than the, they uh, allowed um, uh, allowed for but are forced into the sale that leads to all kinds of disputes within the tribe itself, uh, not surprisingly, uh, with a uh, opposition parties and the whole thing emerges, of course, about this. There's a major dissension happens as a result of the major land loss um, uh, that has its own reverberations later. But it's also the idea that interest payments of investments supposedly by the state, but they never explain for what percentage, right? If they're going to be having an interest what about, let's say, 5% interest or 3% interest, and what is the capital? So they are introducing an element of capitalism, but at the same time, a paternalism in the way they're managing that account. And that, of course, endures pretty much all the way to, um, to the main Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, right? Whereby Indian agents and that budget, it's as opaque as I don't know what about how much money is there? Where did that money go to? Uh, who is being paid out of it, right? You just don't know. It's often, you you uh, refer to the Proctor Report of 1942 and you see some of that obscurity, right? It's like these guardians that are doing all kinds of things with that money, supposedly under a rational system and responsibility, and both are absent. They're just esconding with it. It's, it's, it's a deplorable state. Right. Anyway, the response by the, um, the tribal governor is as follows. Now read, yeah? Yep. Uh, to the dean. Uh, this is 5 November 1829. That's the day after the two-day gathering of the Penobscot uh, Governor Adian and the Council on uh, Indian Island um, with John Dean as the agent for the state of Maine. And they wrote that letter uh, just days after. And this is the letter I'm quoting. By the governor and Indians in council, quote, in answer to the application made by John G. Dean Esquire in the name of this state, that we, the Penobscot tribe of Indians, would sell the government of this state, our two townships, we say as follows. The white people have repeatedly asked us to dispose of our lands 
and we have sold to them one portion after another till we have but very little left. The prospect is that in two or three generations, this will not be enough for our children. To us, it looks strange that white people knowing this would ask us to sell nearly half we have left, namely two of the four townships, when at the same time they have in this state so many thousands of acres of wild land. If all their lands were cleared and settled, and consequently they wanted more, we should be willing to yield them a share of our own, for we are brothers and one God made us all. Till this is the case, leave us little, this little pittance, the miserable remains of the white lands our fathers left us, enough to sleep on while we live and to bury us when we die. And what do white people uh, suppose we must think when we see they wish to take us from us one piece of land after another, till we have no place to stand on, unless it is to drive us, our wives and our little children away. But if so great and so free a country as this would exterminate us, we have no chance anywhere else. We or our children must sooner or later be driven into the salt water and perish. But you say it is necessary that our townships be settled and there should be towns on a military road from um, Brewer by way of Madawamkak to Holton. How not the Indians tried already to settle the Madawamkak township you want most because they need it for its advantages of farming, hunting and fishing. Our governor, John Adion understood this. Why did he not stay there at Madawamkak point? Because a bad white man in his absence by continually alarming his family, at last frightened his wife and children away. Nor was this once. He had with enough labor constructed an eel weir with which great lots of that fish were to have and quantities of them salted down. This they destroyed. They also dug up and carried away his provisions, his pork, his fish, his potatoes, and so on. And finally, they burnt his cabins to the ground. It is treatment of this sort that has prevented the Indians hitherto from settling on some of their islands and on their townships. By and by, they will try again. As to the opening towns on the military road, Indians have had talk among themselves some time ago. They know that white men also travel that road must want taverns. They wish such men to be accommodated and they have seen last year and this present year what they were able by giving permits to white men to open a tavern at Badawankek Point, where it was most needed. Next year, they will continue with their agent to have other taverns provided them when and where they wanted. So the travelers shall have no reason to complain on this point. Thus we have done and are willing to do all that is reasonable to accommodate our white brethren. Why then do they show us if they wish to reduce us to extremity? When the United States were fighting for our liberty in the American Revolutionary War, General Washington sent for the chiefs of our tribe, um, Joseph um, uh, Orono, and gave them his promise that if we would remain neutrals in the war, we, he would secure us our rights. We have been faithful to our white brethren and all we ask in return is that their conduct toward us should be just and reasonable. Old Town, November 5, 1829. Make some great points there for sure. Yeah, so that quote about driving them into the ocean, that's, that's used over and over again. And I, I'm glad that we know where it's from, and I, I, I believe the last uh, radio show we had, uh, uh, Mike, Micah quoted that, but I, I'm glad that you read that whole letter because it's really, really powerful letter. Darren, do you have anything you want to add or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, thanks, thanks for reading that. I think that's a really, um, 
you know, th that's what's great about some of these documents. If you can get the, you know, you mentioned Anthropology Herald or, or you know, lawyers, you know, just seeing the vibrancy of, of you know, act, explaining what's actually going on, you know, on the ground for us as tribal folks, you know, we, we do have these um, expressions like, like the one you just read that is, you know, you know, describes all the sort of tricks and double binds that um, this this arrangement pushes you into, right? I mean that, and and it's like there's the official, and then there's the unofficial. All these different kinds of pressures, you know, uh, so, so, some of which uh, you know erupt in violence, right? Too. I mean, that's not unheard of, uh, as you as you kind of reference. So, I I, I think that um, you know all these tools again are are about taking our land like you know the the theme for me in terms of you know the the founders of the state of maine like the founders of the u.s you know many of them were land speculators whose land were they speculating our land as well uh, in maine as wabanaki people and that's what that was the move right you know it was a moment <laughs> the creation of the state of maine and it's the the following decades that that was a moment for them to enrich themselves very clearly uh, uh based upon our land and I think that the that those pieces of of our experience as Wabanaki people, you know, really testify to that, their interests. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take that as your final statement, Darren. Uh, and uh, Harold, for me, you already had my merch for Tomer. You're <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> Harold. A couple more minutes. Yes, I would like to tell your audience that uh, in history is not something that just happened in the past. There's a reason why we commemorate. And the commemoration is not just for ceremonial purposes and have some nice uh, gatherings and look at nice, some nice pictures and read some nice texts. But the past determined uh, the present as much as the present is determining the future. And so when we're thinking about today, we're also laying the foundations for the future. And by looking back uh, at the past, we can learn perhaps some lessons, some forgotten lessons, some ignored lessons. And the reason why people like us actually study the past is not just for the sake of the past, which is interesting in itself, but also to understand better the conditions um, that uh, we are contending with today and possibly to not make the same mistakes um, as have happened in the past or when people are ignorant about something and don't know that you can't get them uh, led away with it. So for me, it's really the importance of um, not taking away easy stories from the past or cute stories from the past, but really look at the stuff like these letters by Dean and the response by the travel governor um, to that letter. So I wanna thank you, uh, Professor Prince and, uh, and uh, Darren Ranko for being on the show. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs> <laughs>